So tonight we're going to be in 2 Chronicles. If you have a Bible, you can open up to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. And we're just sort of plowing through these kings of Judah. 19 different kings reigned in Judah before the captivity in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians took them away. And then we had the northern kingdom at the same time that had 20 kings. And they were taken away into captivity in 722 B.C. by the Syrian Empire. So we still have the two kingdoms existing at the same time. We'll get to Hezekiah around the corner a week from now. And that's when you really just get the focus starts to be just what's left of Israel in the, in the land of the two tribes in the south, Benjamin and Judah. And we've been seeing these kings. We had a great king, Jehoshaphat. And then we've had a mixed bag, if you will, since then. But tonight we're going to see three different kings who were really quite different in their identities in the history, in the narrative, and we're going to see things we can learn from their lives in application. One thing that links these kings tonight, too, before I forget to mention it, in the famous book of Isaiah, the prophetic book of Isaiah that has so many great prophecies about Jesus coming and what he would do, it was during the time of these kings. The very first verse of Isaiah, he mentions these four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, and Ahaz, and then Hezekiah. So now when we're reading of these kings tonight and we get in Hezekiah the next few weeks, we're running parallel to the prophetic book of Isaiah for what it's worth, and it, it gives us insight to what the Lord was speaking at that time. So we pick it up tonight in chapter 26, verse 1, and we start with King Uzziah. And this is what we read about this man who reigned for a long time. Now, all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. Now, we studied Amaziah in detail last week. He was the focal point of our topical application on Saturday. He had opportunities. He squandered them. But now his son comes to power. So Uzziah built Elath and restored it to Judah after the king rested with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all his father Amaziah had done. He sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Now he went out and made war against the Philistines and broke down the wall of Gath, the wall of Jebne, and the wall of Ashad. So he had good success against the Philistines in war. He built cities around Ashad and among the Philistines. God helped them against the Philistines, against the Arabians who lived in Gerbaal, against the Munites, also the Ammonites brought tribute to Uzziah. His fame spread as far as the entrance of Egypt, for he became exceedingly strong. That would be politically and militarily the whole, the whole package. Verse 9, And Uzziah built the towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, at the valley gate, and at the corner buttress of the wall. Then he fortified them, and also he built towers in the desert. He dug many wells, for he had much livestock, both in the lowlands and in the plains, he also had farmers and vine dressers in the mountains and in Carmel, for he loved the soil. Moreover, Uzziah had an army of fighting men who went out to war by companies according to the number of their role, as prepared by G.E.L., the scribe, and Masaiah, the officer, under the hand of Hananiah, one of the king's captains. The total number of chief officers of the mighty men of valor was 2,600. And under their authority was an army of 37,500 that made war with mighty power and help, uh, to help the king against the enemy. 
Then Uzziah prepared for them, for their entire army, shields, spears, helmets, body armor, bows, and slings to cast stones. And he made devices in Jerusalem invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and large stones. So his fame spread far and wide, for he was marvelously helped till he became strong. So here he is, right about the time we're getting our driver's license. He's becoming a king at 16, right? I mean, he's, he's, hey, if you're old enough to drive, I guess you're old enough to be a king at that time. And he's the king. And this, he was a king for a long time, as we saw. And the summary of what he did here, there's like an overview of his career as a king, minus a negative, negative event we're going to get in a moment. But it's pretty impressive. I mean, he had military battles that he was successful at. The Lord gave him victory. We read that as he sought the Lord, he was blessed, and he did seek the Lord for quite some time, and he was very blessed, so it was good for the people. We're talking decades of prosperity after the difficult times that preceded his coming to power, so it would have been a good time to be alive and to be a general citizen. It was uh, a stable time. They grew economically. Now, remember, they were completely plundered by his dad. His dad left them. His dad picked all the... Amaziah, his dad, picked the battles with the northern kingdom, Everything was taken, all the treasures. The economy was destroyed by his dad, and he rebuilt it. And in an agri-society, he reestablished all the vineyards. He took the deserts, uh, the desert area of the Judean wilderness, put towers out there, dug wells. I mean, he, he expanded. He was wise, he was successful, and he was a very good politician, and he gets credit for it. He strengthened his military. He incorporated weapons they never had before, so he upgraded the weaponry of his military. We just need to go, only go back a couple hundred years to when Israel had no, they didn't even have like metal weapons, they had clubs and sticks. And here he has this army fully armored, well prepared. He obviously built something like catapults on the walls to strengthen their hand against sieges at that time. It, it really is impressive on the narrative when you read it. And we read a key verse here about who he was, that as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. And it does remind us, you know, the Bible makes very clear that with the Lord, it's always today, isn't it? It's always today. We can't live on yesterday's fruit or yesterday's experience. It's always today. If we go back to when the Jews around 1500 BC came out of Egypt during the wilderness wandering, when, the God, when God delivered them from their bondage as slaves, he fed them the men in the wilderness. And that manna was only good for about sunrise to maybe 9 a.m., to go get the food from heaven that he miraculously provided for him every day. It's manna for today. And it's always about today with the Lord. Perhaps one of the best things that recovery programs, the 12-step and all the other ones have given to our society is that saying one day at a time. One day at a time, being sober and clean will get you a week and then a month and then a year. Or like my sister who just a few weeks ago celebrated 60 years of sobriety and, and a rebuilt life, you know. So one day at a time is a, is a big deal for recovery, but it's a big deal for life, right? Because we can get anxiety over the, we can get condemned over the failures of yesterday. But we can't change yesterday. And the most foolish thing you can ever do is be negative and upset and discouraged and despondent over something you have no ability to change. That's why you should never get upset about presidents and governors. You can vote, you can write a letter, whatever, but after that, what can you do? What you can do is 
accept responsibility for the person in the mirror and how you frame things and the type of attitude you carry through the day. And that's going to do you a lot more good than if a governor has a better attitude or doesn't. Because the real person we give an account for is the person we see in the mirror and what kind of attitude we have. And are we walking by faith? Are we walking in obedience? Those are things we can control. So when you think about one day at a time, that's accepting the responsibility to draw near to the Lord. And as long as Uzziah, as a teenager in his 20s and his 30s, as he got smarter and stronger politically, spiritually, he was doing well with the Lord. As long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Pastor Chuck Smith used to emphasize this all the time at Big Calvary, that he felt secure in the Lord as long as he was seeking the Lord today. And he used to emphasize, if you're not seeking the Lord today, you shouldn't feel secure in the Lord because you're not in the Lord. And Jesus said, we abide in him and we'll be fruitful, and that's daily. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things shall be added to us. So on a positive side, Uzziah prospered because he put himself where he could prosper. One day at a time, he sought the Lord, and we can't change the failures of yesterday, and we should not have anxiety over tomorrow, although all of us, all humanity, generally, that's cognitive in their ability to understand life, has anxiety over tomorrow. That's why, whether it's, obviously, Jesus taught us to be anxious for nothing, but most world religions have a uniformitarian belief that how to deal with anxiety, you know? So whether you're trying to meditate it out on the top of a hill in the Himalayas or giving it to Jesus in the morning, societies recognize that anxiety, all the Greek philosophers, it's just human history is anxiety. There's something about fallen men and women in our sinful nature. We do get anxious for tomorrow because, you know, life is... You know, trial, trial, setback, crisis, trial, setback, and victory. You know, it's like that's how it works. So as long as, you know, as long as we seek the Lord, we're going to prosper. So all we need is faith for today, one day at a time. And if we're seeking the Lord today, we know we'll prosper with the things of the Lord today. And as we link together sequences of days and good habits of seeking the Lord, we're going we're gonna to be fruitful and good things are going to happen. And we're going to prosper in all those things that really matter. But to depart from the Lord, or to think we don't need the Lord, or to renounce the Lord, or even apostatize, completely deny your faith, there's no good things going to come from it. And so we find in the case of Uzziah, that as he really was at the zenith of his power and economic strength, that it says, for he was marvelously helped. Isn't that, what a phrase, that the Lord marvelously helped him. Like, hasn't the Lord marvelously helped you and me for the things of our life? turn things around, get on track. But until he, until he became strong. So strength wasn't, human strength wasn't good for Uzziah. And so we read on in verse 16. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. That's for the priest only. He's not a priest. So Azariah the priest went in after him and with him with 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men, you know, you had to be pretty brave to confront the president or the king or the prime minister when they're full of themselves and they think they're doing the thing of God. Boy, that's, you take your life into your own hands right there, but these men, it says they're valiant, and they, they, verse 18, they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, it is not for you. Man, it's so hard to reprove power like this, but they did. It is not for you, Uzziah to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense, get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. 
Then Uzziah became furious, and he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord, beside the incense altar. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and there on his forehead he was leprous. So they thrust him out of the place. Indeed, he also hurried to get out because the Lord struck him. King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. He dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Then Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah from the first to the last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, wrote. So Uzziah rested with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the field of burial, which belongs to the kings, where they said, he is a leper. Then Jonathan, his son, reigned in his place. It's another one of those kings that has a bad ending. It's a good reminder for me and all of us to think like, hey, let's, let's just be really diligent to make sure that the last fourth quarter of our life, we, when we put something over our, 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 our summary of our life, let it be, she was fruitful, he was faithful. But don't, God forbid, it says he's a leper. Like, think of your ending. Like, he's a leper. It's like, having, like being a great sports star, and then you're identified for some big blunder in the championship game, and that's all anyone ever remembers. 20-year career of greatness, and all they remember is you dropped the touchdown pass to win the Super Bowl or something. He, she's a leper. He's a leper. I mean, that's really, that's really something that gets my attention because if the chapter ended, we're like, yeah, he kind of, you know, he was helped, verse 15, to became strong. I mean, Jotham's a really short chapter next, and it's like, it's all good, but here it's like, oh, he became strong. He had a little prideful down the stretch, but, you know, he worked through it, and God was gracious. No, he was so full of himself that he tried to go for the hat trick. We talk about this, that, you know, Jesus is the, is the king, the priest, and the prophet. It's the big three. Only Jesus in human history is the king, the priest, and the prophet. And yet a couple times you see in the Bible where somebody thinks they can be the king, the priest, and the prophet. And it, that only belongs to the king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus Christ. And whenever any man tries to go for that, it's, it's really like a spirit of antichrist. There's no grace for this, right? Like, these priests risk their lives to stop them, but it's honorable. They're, they're, we're told they're valiant men, but it doesn't even matter, man. When God strikes you with leprosy, you know you don't get to be a priest, which also reminds us in a way to stay in our lane, you know, to be godliness with contentment is great gain, and we want to be the best we can be. We want to be all we can be, and we, can be the, we want to be the very best we can be for all we're meant to be with the call of God in our life. The purpose of our life right now, for the common denominator for all of us, if we say, what's the macro goal? What's the macro purpose of your life? Trust me, this is what you're going to say to fulfill the call of God on my life. There's nothing you can think of that surpasses that or usurps that. So right now, the common denominator we all have, saved or unsaved, the purpose of our life is to fulfill the call of God on our life. And then... That's a broad goal, but that's a life purpose. And then we begin to say, okay, what's that look like? Well, if you're married, to be a faithful husband, a faithful wife. If you're a parent, to raise your children under the Lord. Like, it begins to break down. What's that look like this week with our teenage son or teenage daughter or whatever? It, it takes on more logistics, but the macro, per, macro thing is to fulfill the call of God on our life. And if we're called to be a king, fantastic, or a queen, good for us. Be a really good one. 
But you got to know, like, what you're not called to do. To be, to be really efficient what you're called to do, part of that is related to knowing what you're not called to do. Again, referencing sports, like many great athletes have to determine which thing they're going to do. I, I saw a clip of uh, Patrick Mahomes, the quarterback for the Chiefs, a high school baseball clip throwing a no-hitter. Patrick Mahomes, because his dad was a major league baseball player for the Twins back in the day. Oh, look at Patrick Mahomes in high school throwing a no-hitter. Well, you look at him in football and you think, man, that guy playing Major League Baseball? Can you see that guy in the playoffs? Oh, my goodness. But he had to choose. Tony Gwynn was a great basketball player in college, but he chose baseball and he's the greatest hitter maybe of all time. Allen Iverson won a high school, won a, uh, when we were in Virginia pastoring, when I was there pastoring with Jennifer by my side and doing the ministry, Allen Iverson was in high school and he won a state championship as a high school quarterback. But he's a great point guard. And, of course, the rest is history. And it's, we can't do it all, is what I'm saying. And God's given us, each of us gifts and talents and vision and purpose and passion. And as we seek the Lord, he's going to shape that. And we need, we need to know what we're called to do and be the best we can be, whoever we are, wherever we're at in our, wherever we're at in our journey of life. But that does involve recognizing what we're not called to do. The dissipation of energy from the distractions weakens its, its power for the main thing that we're called to do. What do we say? Quality over quantity. Less is more. And I just think, what is it about us with people, men and women in power, that somehow once you get so much, it's never enough, and you got to have more? And I've mentioned this in studying extremely successful people, extremely successful people, economically or intellectually, as I've studied them and learned certain things, there's a common denominator with a lot of them that, particularly billionaires, because they figure out a system of compound effect and, and numbers and interest and the universe is math and they master the equation of, of how it works where they just have so many things creating compound interest that they can't even spend it all no matter what they do. And that's what happens with billionaires. But something very interesting about many of them is at some point they were professing believers in Christ but then they, they tend to shift toward a philosophy that there's a God spirit within us all, and they became that God spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but that sure sounds like Genesis 3. When the devil says to Eve, hath God said you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? The day you eat from this tree, you'll become like God. See, and that's why pride is so offensive to the Lord, and that's why pride was Satan's undoing in eternity and cast him from the presence of the Lord. What's Uzziah here? It's pride. It says he strengthened himself. And once he became strong, he didn't see his need for the Lord. And there's an equation that goes like this. Human strength, politically, economically, mentally, whatever, human strength often leads to spiritual weakness. So I get a chalkboard. Human strength equals spiritual weakness. But the reverse of that equation is spiritual uh, human weakness equals spiritual strength. Human weakness equals spiritual strength. And that's why we're told not many wise, not many noble are called, but God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. That's when we see the apostles staring down the Sanhedrin council, threatening their lives. In Acts chapter 4, the Sanhedrin council that crucified Jesus said, these men are untrained and uneducated. Human weakness. But they were with Jesus, spiritual strength. 
Now, we want to go from strength to strength, and there's no sin in being strong economically, spiritually, or mentally, or, or economically, politically. There's nothing, there's no virtue in wealth or poverty any more than there's virtue in different things. Like, it's just the way it works. But there is something in our human fallen nature, fallen human nature, where human strength often equals spiritual weakness. So if you have human strength, be careful of spiritual weakness. And Paul said it best to the Corinthians where he said in 2 Corinthians, I have found that when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. And often God gives us a thorn in the flesh that creates weakness to make us physical, human, emotional, economic. He'll create weakness in our human experience to humble us that we would find confidence and strength and gain spiritual strength. So if you gain human strength, take heed and be wise and make sure you're pressing in for spiritual strength at the same time, like King David or maybe Queen Esther, right? Queen Esther was extremely powerful, but she had spiritual strength. She risked her life for her people. It's just, it just reminds me, like, how does this happen? Well, he was strong and his heart was lifted up. Human strength, pride goes before fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. Human weakness, crying out to the Lord, the thorn in the flesh, whatever it is, spiritual strength. So we shouldn't despise the thorn in the flesh. We shouldn't despise the weakness. At any given time, many of us are going through physical infirmities or financial strain or relationship trials and tribulations. And God has a plan to use those things for good to make us more like Christ and make us stronger in the things of the Spirit because we realize we can't heal that relationship. We can't fix this economic situation. We can't heal this infirmity. And we have the Lord. And if the Lord helps us, we're delivered. If he doesn't, then he's with us in the fire, just like with Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego in Babylon. So that's it for Uzziah. He's the guy. He, when he died, Isaiah had the vision of the glory of the Lord. It's all there in the book of Isaiah. He, he was so good politically that everyone loved him. But man, in the end, it was like, dude, man, what, like, dinner table talk, like, man, what a bad ending for a great king, you know? Like, you just love that. Like, he's going to be on stamps. He's going to, you know, you're going to, he's going to be on your currency, right? You know, it's like, dude, the dude was a leper, man. So they didn't do the stamp and they didn't do the currency, which also reminds us that one bad day being lifted up can affect your ending and affect your legacy. So be wise and careful. Chapter 27, we get Jotham. And we read this. It's a short chapter. Jotham was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerushah, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done. That's like a political summary. Although he did not enter the temple of the Lord, but still the people acted corruptly. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. He built extensively on the wall of Ophel, Moreover, he built cities in the mountains of Judah, and in the forest he built fortresses and towers. He also fought with the king of the Ammonites and defeated them. And the people of Ammon gave him in that year 100 talents of silver, 10,000 cores of wheat, 10,000 of barley. The people of Ammon paid this to him in the second and third year also. So Jotham became mighty because he prepared his ways before the Lord, his God. What a contrast to Isaiah, uh, Uzziah. 
Verse 7. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all of his 25 years, his ways, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. So Jotham rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. Then Ahaz, his son, reigned in his place. Jotham is one of those kings that kind of comes off the radar because, again, if you know your Bible fairly well in the historical books, say, hey, give us the top three kings of Judah out of those 19 kings. You're just going to go Josiah, Hezekiah, and Jehoshaphat. They're really going to probably take it. If Uzziah hadn't had the bad ending, he might even make that list. He's like honorable mention. He gets a ribbon, not a medal. But you don't really think of Jotham. And in both cases where his life is summarized in the book of Kings and here, there's not a lot of text, but all of it is good. In fact, it is pointed out by those with observation of the passages of the Kings. He's the only king you don't get anything bad for. Of all the kings, there's nothing bad. It makes you think of like it says in Thessalonians that we would, would aspire to live a quiet, peaceful life. This is the will of God, to live a quiet, peaceful life and serve the Lord faithfully. Or as we say in baseball, the best umpire is the one you never see, right? We don't want to see the umpire. We don't want to see him out there kicking someone out of the game or making controversial calls. Like, you can't avoid some things, but like, this is a good life. His summary is not a huge resume, but if you read it, to break it down in terms we all understand, he was successful. He was successful at everything he did. Everything was successful. In fact, he built the, the special pathway between the palace and the temple to go worship the Lord. He so sought the Lord that he created a, a, a system by which he could kind of just get there without going out in the general public. Kind of like if you go to Petco Park for the Padres and you stay at the Omni. The Omni is a big hotel right next to Petco Park. You can stay at the Omni and you have a private gate to go to Petco Park. You don't have to go on the street, go through the main gate, because we've done that. My sister-in-law used to work for Omni, and it was awesome when the kids were younger. We went to the Omni, you know, we're there, and we're going to the game, and you just go right to the hotel entrance, Petco Park, your private entrance as a, as a guest of the Omni Hotel. That's what he did, because it says he built, he built the cities, and he, and he built the pathway. He built the upper gates, and he did all that, and he made that way to go to the temple. He did it. Now, Ahaz, who replaced him, destroyed it. We'll see that in the next chapter tonight. But you know what? It doesn't matter what happens after you're gone or when I'm gone. We don't give an account for that. We give an account for who we are and what we did when we're here. And if, if your son, the king that follows you, is determined to undo every good thing you ever did, all he's doing is fulfilling what Solomon said. Because Solomon said, you work hard, you build a great brand, a great company, and your knucklehead kid wrecks it all. That's the, that's the living, living, living translation by Pastor Joey, but that is Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and 2. That's what he was like, oh, what a curse, you know. The poor man dies this way, I die right next to the poor man. I have all this wealth, and I give it to these kids, and you never know, they can just get destroy it and wreck it all. That's exactly what happened with Rehoboam. So we can't worry about that. We can pray for our kids and our adult kids and our grandkids and even our children's children's children and do the best we can to bless them, but in the end, they're going to live their life. I saw today in Vero Beach they're going to open up a new freeway off-ramp from the 95. Now, if you've never driven the 95 in Florida, it's like click, 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 click. If you know the, the 95 from Maine all the way to the Keys, the way that you hear the clicking sound because the way they built the freeway. And as you go down Florida, every city has a beach boulevard. 
The freeway is about five miles inland of the beach, the entire length from Jacksonville to Miami. And when you exit, you go five miles toward the beach. And here's your beach boulevard. There's your Target, there's your Home Depot, there's your Walmart, you know, and your Chipotle, and that's how it works. And then there's a lot of open land in Florida. But of course, everyone's moved, it's the number one state people are moving to. And so Hannah's lived in Vero Beach for 10 years with her husband, Nate, and we've watched, it's where the Dodgers used to do spring training, if you know your history. Beautiful city, one exit. It's 13 miles between exits. Sebastian is 13 miles north of Vero, and then you come to Vero. If you're going south toward Miami, you exit Vero, and there you go. Vero Boulevard, Highway 60. Well, when you go from small town to a bigger town, you get more off-ramps. And Vero's got a lot of land, and Hannah sent another article today. The next five years, they're building one of those four exit circular off-ramps, freeways. It's going to open up South Vero by Fort Pierce, Point St. Lucie. It's progress. And I, it was ribbon cutting. She said, as I saw today, she's like, this is when I get up, there was a text from, or thing from Hannah. Well, they show them cutting the ribbon. It's 95 degrees. It's July. It's warm. It's Florida. But they're out there. And I thought, you know, this is like Carlsbad and Encinitas and Del Mar 40 years ago. Because I grew up in Carlsbad when it was 12,000 people in 1972. Can you imagine? But what I thought is, when I looked at this, this article, is, you know, what a business opportunity for a future generation. But not mine. That's what I thought. I thought, you know, in five to ten years, there's going to be like a Holiday Inn Express there. There's going to be you know, a Bucky's gas station with 80 pumps for people going between Miami and Jacksonville. It's going gonna, it's gonna to develop just like, remember when the airplanes were at El Toro? Remember the Marine Corps base at El Toro? Remember Lion Country Safari? Remember that? Remember the motel on Beach Boulevard where Pacific City is? Remember that? Oh, the surf theater? I went there once. Every generation has their time. And then you run your journey, and you're done, and then it's their time. So you younger people, if you got a couple million, I tell you, buy a bunch of acres right now, right off the freeway in Vero Beach. Find a way. My old neighbor in Carlsbad, Leonard Melgram, bought all this real estate when he got out of high school back in the day. Had dinner with him seven years ago at a wedding reception. He owns all this. He has more, he's like the compound. He's got more real estate and knows what to do with all over North County. He just figured it out. Never got married, never had anyone to share it with. You know what he talked about for two hours at dinner? His 12 goats. He's got $100 million in real estate asset wealth in San Diego County. His favorite thing is to take care of his goats on the 20 acres in Chula Vista. He goes, you can learn a lot from goats. I'm like, yes, you can. I know all about sheep and goats, let me tell you, Leonard. It was great. What are you saying, Joey? I'm saying you have your generation like Jotham. And if you've got 16 years, shine. And don't worry about what's going to happen after you when your son tears this down or this happens or who, what this present and the future is going to do. And all, Listen, we have here and now, as we just said, we have today. We have this day. So you make it count. What did Jotham do? Well, Uzziah's dad prospered when he sought the Lord. What did Jotham do? It said, he became mighty because he prepared his ways before the Lord his God. And I will say this, though the text doesn't say it, we know it. He maintained his ways throughout his life with the Lord. He prepared his ways, and he maintained his ways. 25 plus 16 is not that much, huh? 41 is pretty young. 
40 is the new 20 when you're 60. 41 is young. That's, that's a short life. 41 is, boy, but he made it count, didn't he? It's like if you only played the first half of football, you know, because the days of man are 70 years by measure of strength, 80. So we always use 80 as a reference point. 2041 is when I'm 80. And it's, that's the, anything after that's overtime, right, for me. That's why I say, like, hey, you know, it's definitely the second half. But you never know. It could be the two-minute warning because tomorrow is guaranteed to none of us. But you make the most of your time. Jotham just has a few verses. You don't need a big resume, but you want one that says you, you became mighty because you prepared your ways before the Lord your God. That means you sought the Lord. That means his word was your standard of right and wrong. That means his spirit led you and guided you in your decision making. That means you treated people with respect and dignity and you're a servant leader and you saw people where the Lord sees them. That means the Ten Commandments actually meant something more than something that's been outlawed from public places. They rule in your heart in the decision making, again, of your attitude, your decisions, what you speak, how you see things, and the woman or the man you see in the mirror. He prospered. In a difficult thing, it preceded him, economic collapse that his father left him, a ruin, military defeat, and all the chaos his son did after him. It's just so refreshing to know that this guy prepared his ways, and in the 16 years that he had to make things happen, he made things happen because he always sought the Lord. And he is the only king of 39 kings between Kings and Chronicles that only has good things said about him. That's fascinating. It's very inspiring. Well, I suppose Josiah would be the same. And how long did he live? 39. That's why we, we always don't say tomorrow. You know what the Lord, it's never tomorrow. Today is the day of the Lord. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day of faith. Today is the day to seek the Lord. Give us this day our daily bread. It is always today with the Lord. And for someone like Jotham, he became mighty because he prepared his ways, which means he prepared his heart, his attitudes, his plans, everything was the Lord's, and he prospered. And he stepped into eternity at 40, 41 years of age. That is really young. Chapter 28, now we end tonight with Ahaz, the third king. As I mentioned, the book of Isaiah has a lot to say about Ahaz. The virgin birth was promised to Ahaz. He was given opportunity to test the Lord, to have his faith strengthened. He rejected it all. We studied Ahaz in great detail when we were in Second Kings. Tonight, we'll just kind of read his story and pull one thing from it. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, as his father David had done, for he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He made molded images to the Baals, the false gods. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and he burned his children in the fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Therefore, so here we have cause and effect. Therefore, the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Syria. They defeated him and carried away a great multitude of them as captives, brought them to Damascus. Then he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel in the north who defeated him with a great slaughter. For Pekah, Pekah is a really bad guy, by the way. He was the king in the north. The son of Remaliah killed 120,000 in Judah in one day, all valiant men, because they had forsaken the Lord of their fathers. Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim from the north, killed Messiah, the king's son. Azrakim, the officer of the house, and Elkanah, who was second to the king. 
And the children of Israel carried away captive of their brethren 200,000 women, sons, and daughters, and they took away much spoil from them and brought them and the spoil, the spoil of Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. But a prophet of the Lord was there whose name was Oded, and he went out before the army that came to Samaria, and he said to them, Look, because the Lord God of your fathers was angry at Judah, he's delivered them into your hand, but you have killed them in a rage that reaches up to heaven. And now you propose to force the children of Judah and Jerusalem to be your male and female slaves? But are you not also guilty before the Lord your God? Now hear me. Therefore return the captives whom you have taken captive from your brethren, for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. Then some of the heads of the children of Ephraim from the north, Azariah the son of Johanan, Barakiah the son of Meshlamoth, Jehezekiah the son of Shalom, and Amasa the son of Hadlai, stood up against those who came from the war and said to them, You shall not bring the captives here, for we already have offended the Lord. You intend to add to our sins and to our guilt, for our guilt is great, and there is a fierce wrath against Israel. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the leaders and all the assembly. So the army, like, you know, they capitulated. They said, okay. Then the men who were designated by name rose up and took the captives from the spoil. They clothed those who were naked among them, dressed them and gave them sandals, gave them food and drink, anointed them, and so let all the feeble ones ride on donkeys. So they brought them to their brethren at Jericho, the city of the palm trees, and they returned. then they returned to Samaria. This is a very interesting story. So it was a great military victory for the north by their evil king. Now, what fascinates me about this is that the Assyrian army would come into the north around this time and completely wipe out the north. All these northern tribes, they're taken away into slavery by the Assyrians, one of the most brutal, vicious people group that ever lived in human history, to be slaves and reallocated in different parts of the Middle East. And I just had this thought. For these men that stood up, and stood up for the releasing of these captives, for the people who agreed with it. When the day of wrath comes upon you, it's nice to know that you showed mercy when you could have shown wrath. You follow me? Because the Bible tells us the one who shows mercy will find mercy. So as the northern kings are being over, the northern kingdom is being overrun by the Assyrians, I think of these men listed by name who are identified with the, the enemy of the south. Which just goes to show, just because there's bad politicians and leaders doesn't mean they have to be bad citizens and constituents. And we've said this during COVID, we said this before COVID, we'll say it till the end of time, that bad political leaders, or good political leaders, good political leaders, leaders, good political leaders do not make great constituents. We already saw that, because it says Jotham did the right thing, but the people wanted to do evil. We saw that in the last chapter. And bad political leaders, while they accentuate evil, they don't necessarily make you be evil. We have a freedom of conscience before God. Just like Martin Luther, 95 thesis on the door at Wittenberg. We have, we have, God of the universe gives us self-determination for the morality and the integrity and the character of our soul. And no leader can take that from us, ever, from any human being. Jesus is Lord. The glory of God the Father. And that, that can govern us from day one to the last day if we so choose to. So I just appreciate that these men from an evil kingdom did a good deed. They showed mercy. And as I'm always thinking ahead, I'm thinking, man, when man, those Assyrians came in and they come to take my vineyard, my house, my freedom, and all my wealth, and I'm, I don't know, I just... 
you built up equity. When you show mercy, you build equity for a future situation when you need mercy. Let me say that again. When you show mercy, you are building future equity and a savings account, if you will, for when you will need mercy. Because in a universe where it's all sowing and reaping and what you get is what you, what you give is what you get, to the one who shows mercy, they will find mercy. That's what Jesus taught us. And that's what the Bible declares to us. So good reminder to always be the hands of grace and mercy, humility and kindness. Even if you're surrounded by all sorts of evil, be the one that does good in the midst of evil. And God will always honor that. And even if it's lost in the annuals of human history or whatever, because you think for every Koytim boom that saved Jews during the Nazi occupation and those type of people who did things for people like Anne Frank and whatever, and, and those people during, like the Camaroos who risked their lives to save Cambodians and Vietnamese fleeing and Laotians and all those people who did all those good things that maybe died in their good deeds or died in obscurity in Garden Grove and no one even knew who they were as new immigrants never speaking English. Man, God knows. God knows. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro over the face of the earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are Lord to him. He knows. And I guarantee you, when we show mercy, we are guaranteeing ourselves mercy in the future. And that's why it's a really good idea to condemn not or judge not. It's good to discern, but don't let discernment become judgment or condemnation because it won't be a good ending in time and it will be even worse in eternity. Now we read a little bit more here about Ahaz. So verse 16, at that same time, King Ahaz sent to the kings of Assyria to help him. For again, the Edomites had come and attacked Judah and carried away captives. The Philistines also invaded the cities of the lowland of the south of Judah and had taken Beth Shemesh, Ajalon, Geradoth, Shokah with its villages, Timnah with its villages, Gimzo with its villages, and they dwelt there. They just took their cities. They annexed them. For the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had encouraged moral decline in Judah, and he had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. Also Tiglath-Pilzer, the king of Assyria, came to him and distressed him and did not assist him. For Ahaz took part of the treasures from the house of the Lord, from the house of the king, from the leaders, and he gave it to the king of Assyria, but he didn't help him. And the arm of flesh can never be compared to to the arm of the Lord. Verse 22, now the time of Now, in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. This is that King Ahaz. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him, saying, Well, because the gods of the kings of Samaria, of Syria, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they are to the ruin of him and all Israel. So Ahaz gathered all the articles of the house of God, cut in pieces the articles of the house of God, shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, that is the temple, and made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. And in every single city of Judah he made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoked the anger of the Lord God of his fathers. Now the rest of his acts and all of his ways from first to last, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. So Ahaz rested with his fathers and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem they did not bring him to the tombs of the kings of Israel. Then Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. So this is how Hezekiah came to power. This is the background to it. Now, when we studied Ahaz and kings, we saw that he actually got Uriah the priest from Judah to go up there and study these altars of the Syrians that they used to worship the Syrian gods and had them had it built right there in the temple area. 
He knew no restraint. And we know people like this. They're so evil. They're just born evil. They are evil. And you have to recognize the evil and just not have any fellowship with evil and not let it have any power at all. They're just, just, he's just a bad egg. You know, he's just an evil person from start to finish. He encouraged moral decline. And it is sad, but human history shows us there are very powerful men and women who come to come to power over the souls of men and women, and they encourage moral decline. If there's a better description to the vast majority of government in America in my timeline, I think it's hard to find it. The moral decline since I was born in 1961 in this country is, well, I'd say it's unprecedented, but it's not, because it happened in Rome and Greece and other places too. A couple generations is all it takes. And you take prayer out of school, you take the Ten Commandments as a moral standard of right and wrong, and he's, look what we got now. Moral decline. But I got to thinking about this. Bad leadership produces bad fruit. So, like, for example, when Hitler comes to power and he makes being a Jew an evil thing, and only a few Christians actually spoke up against that, people like Bonhoeffer, then the Jewish people join in with him, excuse me, the German people join in with him, and they blame the Jews for all their ills and wrongdoings. That was really a carryover of their bad decisions to start World War I 20 years before. So then they, they, you know, once, you know, so he wants to persecute the Jews, and then he puts them on the trains to death camps, and then the, and then the German people are helping him do it. And it's a chain reaction. So we say this about leadership. The people you lead will rarely rise above the moral fabric and standard that you have. So if you lower the the moral fiber of the leadership, you're lowering the standard of what will follow. Rarely does that which follow rise above that which leads. Which brings us with our closing thought tonight. A reminder to us that all followers of Christ are called to be leaders for Christ. And it's important that we raise the bar in our own life and we hold ourselves accountable to a higher standard, the standard of, of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you are so. That his word is our standard. His spirit is our strength. His promises are our hope. And so we, we strengthen ourselves in the Lord like Jotham did. And we get stronger. We go from strength to strength because we let the Lord be the Lord. And we hold a higher... See, we hold a higher standard. When your kids go away to college, they need to know the standard isn't the professor. The standard is Jesus Christ in your heart. That's the standard. When they go to get married, the standard isn't failed marriages that they saw before. The standard is the standard that God has for marriage that they choose to embrace for their marriage. See, we raise the bar. And we raise the bar through faith, humility, obedience, servanthood, integrity, and character. And we raise the bar for the woman in the mirror, and it will naturally raise the bar for the people that we are able to lead. So let's close with a positive thought on that. That let Christ lead our way and let us follow and lead in his way and not worry about who's lowering the bar that we have no control over, but focus on the woman in the mirror and the man in the mirror who can raise the bar in humility, faith, grace, mercy, truth, love, the kingdom. That's my job as a pastor, to raise the bar in a good way. Not like a Pharisee or legalistically, but just in a good way. Raise the bar. John Corson told me 35 years ago, Joey, the church is always a reflection of you. So raise the bar. Be the standard in the secret and it will prove itself in the public. And what's true for me as a pastor is true for all of us 
in our walks of life, where we work, where we live, and who we lead in whatever capacity it is. So forget Ahaz. He did what he did. He encouraged moral decline. Let our faith and our life encourage spiritual life and the kingdom. Yes and amen. amen.